Professional wrestling, like real life, is full of surprises. Hi everyone, it's Freddie Prinze Jr. And it's no surprise I can talk wrestling all day, any day. Kind of like how State Farm agents can talk insurance and help you choose the right coverage. When it comes to important insurance decisions, let State Farm support you with the coverage you need backed with 24-7 support. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, Amar. Hey, Wilmer. Can you believe that it's been almost a year since we started Essential Voices? No, you know, I can't believe it. Do you remember what our first episode was? I remember it well. We spoke to Jenny Suarez about her work as a restaurateur in Oakland and how she stepped up for her community running Feed ER which distributed meals from local restaurants to other essential workers and those in need during the beginning of the pandemic. Such an incredible initiative. And that episode was when we first bonded over our shared restaurant experience. Yes. <laughs> we both have been shaped by working in restaurants. And you always say that every person should have that experience. I know, I know, my broken record. But it definitely teaches you so much about empathy and working with other folks. And today, we thought we'd bring it full circle and come back to restaurants. We're going to hear from essential worker Andres Almeida. Andres is a server at a restaurant in New York, along with being a graduate student and advocate for the organization One Fair Wage. The restaurant he works at didn't close during the pandemic. So Andres tells us about what it was like working during all the different stages of the past couple of years, including adapting to new safety regulations, but also adapting to the attitudes of different customers. After Andres' story, we'll have a roundtable discussion with chef and host of Broken Bread, Roy Choi, and author and president of One Fair Wage, Saru Jayaraman. Andres' story starts now. Andres, thank you so much for being here with me and chatting about your work and who you are. I'm really excited for the conversation today. So to get started, tell me a little bit about who you are and what's important to you. What is important to me? I feel like I still believe in the American dream, even though that sounds a little more controversial nowadays because people question a lot about America and the society that we live in. But as an immigrant, I've been seeing many sides of the story, like people that come to this country and fight very hard for their dreams. And so I feel like I'm a pursuer. I'm a, someone that likes to dream. And as an essential worker, there is great relation between what we do every day and the dreams that we pursue in. 
because like we don't have more options that work in certain industries and then we have to work like double hard if we want to kind of like growth mm. uh, financially socially so i feel like that's definitely part of my story how i came to this country i worked in the service industry now i'm pursuing a great master's degree program that's amazing graduate school is no joke so congrats And besides being a student, you mentioned that you're an essential worker and you mentioned the service industry. So throughout the pandemic, what were you doing and where were you working? I was working in this um, restaurant in Brooklyn. We never closed. That was like very fortunate for many people, but it was kind of like a roller coaster of emotions and feelings throughout the pandemic. But I still feel a little angry about how people just quickly forgot about how hard is for the workers that like face the public hmm. i try to live between being so grateful about the job that i had and the job that i still have even though i don't work as many hours that i used to yeah that makes a lot of sense i mean even before the pandemic i feel like many folks didn't understand what the work is really like so i can imagine that that was exacerbated during the pandemic I was actually a chef for many years, so I feel like I have my own answers to the question that I'm about to ask you. But I'm curious in your opinion, what are some things about working in the service industry and particularly in the restaurant industry that you feel like people don't know but should? For me, it definitely has been like a long road, almost like seven years working in this industry. And I feel like at this point, it takes a lot for me to deal with. And nowadays it's even worse. Like I don't really know how to deal with it. Uh, it teaches you. It teaches you to be patient, to be understanding that not everyone comes with the same background, not everyone has the same manners, not everyone had the same education. I mean, the great part is that understanding like how different people are and how different, like how those differences can like get reflected everywhere they go. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, as you're saying, I think being in a restaurant environment brings out both the best and the worst of people. And learning how to be around all different kinds of folks is a skill that I feel like sets up restaurant industry folks super well to pursue other jobs or also outside of work, be able to get along with lots of different personalities. But it seems like you're talking about some of the more difficult aspects of the customer service component of the industry. But I'd like to know, is there something in particular that makes you passionate or that you really love about doing this kind of work? I would say people. People, the fact that I can't just stand behind a desk and, and work in a computer, I need to work with people. And many times I had amazing conversations and I met amazing people that in a later time, they became someone very important in my life and even influential. That for sure. And the fact that serving people for me has like a, even like a greater meaning. I want to be a public servant. I want to work in policy. So for me, knowing how to measure like the feelings of other people is very important and at a restaurant get the sense are people feeling okay are people having a good time or are, are they feeling like angry about their service it wasn't what they wanted so I feel like that was the greatest part for me just those skills that I've learned and definitely I'm going to be able to apply in the future for any of my future career. Yeah you're talking about honing an intuitive nature being able to read what people want before they even maybe know what they want And that's definitely an incredibly valuable skill. And it makes me wonder how you use that skill throughout the pandemic while working with customers. From my experience in restaurants pre-pandemic, the industry is already so fast-paced and intense, you don't really ever get a break. And then when the pandemic emerged, there are other things that are really affecting the work. 
And then there have been so many varied phases of the pandemic and restrictions. So how did the day-to-day service at the restaurant where you were working change with the pandemic? Yeah, well, definitely, I will say the first phase of the pandemic was a lot of uncertainty and fear. People didn't know what to do. And I feel like that applied to everyone. That was like the uncertainty of like the industry, but also the uncertainty of a public health emergency. We didn't know. We didn't have any vaccines available for people. Then as the months went by, we had better conditions. People were feeling safer. So people started coming back. The industry started reopening. The city organized restaurants that way that they could open spaces outside of their restaurants. So people started like flooding again the restaurants and getting the restaurants started getting full. At the beginning, I would say people were more appreciative of what we were doing and very like grateful and very considered and patient. And there was like uh, this feeling of like gratitude towards mm-hmm. essential workers, right. health workers. But I feel like that just say like, went away. Though we're still living in a pandemic, I don't. I don't feel that people still talk about essential workers the way they were doing a year ago, like a year and a half ago. Mm. So, you know, vaccination came. We started living the new normal as we talk about it. And then the concept of essential worker just like definitely were completely off. That that's what I can't like what I can say under my perspective. Thank you for saying that. I mean, everything that you're bringing up makes so much sense to me. We're in this moment where folks want to move on and put the pandemic behind them. So it's kind of no surprise that talking about essential workers fades into the background, really, unfortunately. I'm wondering if there's a particular moment from working recently that you'd like to share that makes you feel like there needs to be systemic changes in the restaurant industry to improve conditions for yourself and fellow essential restaurant workers, even as the pandemic keeps shifting and, air quotes here, fading into the background of people's minds. I mean, you know, over the years you work for a place and, you know, you have to always be very attached to the rules and treating customers in a very nice way, regardless of anything, you know. But like, I'm at this point now that I'm a student. One day I was working and I had this customer that only like basically taped 10% of X amount on the check. And, and, you know, I was like angry. And I told the person, hey, knowing and knowing that the person knows the dynamics that work in America, those are our salaries and you're just not giving what is fair. So I was just like, no, because like, I'm not only even feeling my own pain and my hard work, I'm just like seeing the hard work of my coworkers that got sick after Omicron, that they also live through their uncertainty. And he's just saying, no, just because you're not aware, that's not the reality. And I will tell you that this is not accepted. Hmm. But I'm sure like that experience for them, for, for good or for bad, will be remarkable. And they will just like think next time, hey, if I have the money to pay almost $100 for like two meals, mm. I would have the money to pay what I think is fair because like these people work in an industry. And then again, that's why an organization like One Fair Wage is, is fighting for because like, we work in an industry that we underpay by our employers. Uh, the, the things that I've been doing with One Fair Wage is talking about my own experience, how I'm transitioning from this industry to another field. Mm. That's why I'm in school for, and I'm just like trying to move forward. And to be honest, I'm not patiently waiting for the time that I can completely leave the industry. Mm. But now the more that I interact with people like you guys, it's just like, I feel like encouraged and motivated to say like, okay, if I'm going to leave the industry, I'll leave from raising my voice making people understand that this is a very valuable job and like what we do is very, very, needs to be very like appreciated and, mm. and we need to be grateful for everyone that works in the industry. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, using your voice is such a powerful way to make change. And I'm honored that you're here doing that with us today. It's awesome that you have a goal in mind of working in policy so that you can have a hand in changing systems that undervalue and underpay essential workers. And this leads me to something I've been wanting to ask you, which is about your connection to the organization One Fair Wage. Could you tell me about who they are and how they support folks working in the restaurant industry? Yeah, absolutely. I learned about One Fair Wage right when COVID started. For the time that I've been living in New York, I've been connected to nonprofit organizations in the nonprofit world, that mostly the folks that work supporting immigrants and the working class, let's say. I don't know if I just say was like doing my usual research and, and trying to like find some definitely help. Like there was uncertainty. So that's how I learned about one for wage. And I applied for one of those like grants, let's say that they were doing for people that was working in the service industry. And I did apply and then I feel like kind of like started a relationship with them, knowing what they were doing. So I became closer and I've been working with a couple of organizers and knowing that they're leading campaigns in many states, but mostly right now in New York State, trying to raise the wage and make it like fair, basically. I feel like mm. that name that they have just describes their mission very well. And it's the mission of like giving all the essential workers, including myself, one fair wage. That's amazing. It's awesome to hear that you're involved with raising wages in an extremely underpaid industry and organizing and advocating. I mean, it's just awesome. And I'm wondering how the community and listeners to today's show who might be learning about One Fair Wage for the first time, how can folks support the work that you and One Fair Wage are doing? Well, uh, not only One Fair Wage, but any nonprofit organization that works for for immigrants, for essential workers, for the working class, for for people of color, joining organizations, advocating, anything helps, and of course donating. So there are always many ways to learn. You can be, of course, like an ally, and even if you haven't worked in the industry, just listening to the stories of many people and trying to be more compassionate. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's good to know that there are multiple ways to get involved and that the best way to get involved is just taking that first step, getting involved with a local organization. So thank you. And as we wrap things up here, what messages would you want to leave for future essential restaurant workers and maybe specifically future immigrant essential restaurant workers like yourself? Um, One thing that I know for sure is that many people even maybe myself in many other seasons in my life, they live out of fear. So one important thing to tell to other immigrants and essential workers, whether they're Americans or immigrants or newly arrived Americans, whatever you want to call it, is like you cannot live out of fear and you have to really get out of that. The industry sometimes is very evil and you really have to be aware of that. It's an industry that kind of like sucks the best of you. So you need to like really raise your voice and and leave out of fear and you get out of the comfort zone and you just like, you know, like make sure you're worth it as a human, you're worth it as an immigrant, you're worth it as an American. And that's very, I feel like the, the, the thing that I have to say. You know, Amar, we've spoken to almost 30 different essential workers and it still shocks me how disrespectfully workers like Andres are treated. You know, I'm so glad he has been able to stand up for himself and his co-workers and I hope that everyone listening is taking some notes. Mm, I agree. Restaurants can be such special places for both workers and diners, but only if we respect our common humanity. 
So to continue the conversation on how to make restaurants the best that they can be, when we come back from the break, we'll talk with Chef Roy Choi and Saru Jayaraman. I love sharing positive tips with my listeners on everything from health challenges to relationship troubles. Because life happens, baby, but you got this. Hi there, I'm Honey German, and I know we can all use some positive energy these days. That's why I make sure to empower my community, because a bit of motivation and support can go a long way. And luckily, we have State Farm to support us. Like when you talk to a State Farm agent to choose the coverage you need, and they have the options to protect the things you value most. It's the perfect positive tip you need. State Farm is also a big supporter of the My Cultura podcast network, where we as podcast hosts get to share our experiences and stories. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite My Cultura shows wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Roy and Saru, welcome to Essential Voices. We're so stoked to have you on today's show and to be able to have the opportunity to discuss the restaurant industry with you both. So Wilmer, take it away. So what are your reactions to Andres' story? I mean, maybe we can start with you, Roy, and then we go to you, Saru. Yeah, I mean, I'm very familiar with this story. I've been in the food business as an immigrant. It's you know something I grew up in and then eventually became a professional in, which wasn't intended. You know, most immigrant families are people that work in kitchens or run small mom and pop restaurants or start from nothing. You know, the allegory of coming to this country with nothing is not just a fairy tale, it's real, you know? And so when you come here, usually the only thing that you have is your memory of food. Sometimes it's not only a pathway to make a living, but also as a bridge back to where you came from. But a lot of families don't want their kids to go into that business because that was what they do to get their kids into the American dream. But uh, I've been around it my whole life. I've been around it. I grew up in a restaurant. I worked in a restaurant in high school. And now I'm a professional chef. You know, the system itself is broken. There's not many other professions or areas of work where there's so much disparity and exploitation within the same structure. And I'm mainly talking about front of the house and back of the house. It's a very old European system that doesn't make sense anymore in this new world economy. 
it doesn't make sense for because of your language or the way that you look or your enunciation of words that you can make 10 times more than someone else and work maybe one-fifth of the amount of time. There's never going to be a level playing field for anyone working in the service industry unless the idea of tipping gets confronted because the dishwasher should get as much as the captain. Everything should be shared across the board. If that's never confronted, and if we're only working off of this kind of, you know, Bridgerton, Downton Abbey fantasy of what service is, there's never going to be any progression because there's the disparities built in. A lot of us end up in this industry because we either love it, there's nowhere else for us to go, or again, we're cast out by society, whether that's because of our language or because of our past record, criminal record, or whatever the case may be. The only place in the world that accepts us is, in many cases, is the kitchen. But it's still a hard road to get from dishwasher to waiter. It just doesn't make sense anymore. And it maybe made sense in a way when the world was a little more even, you know, let's say the 70s or the 80s. Mm-hmm. I know you're from the 70s show. <laughs> in the 70s, you know, where like shit was somewhat affordable. But now it's way out of whack and it just can't sustain itself. So I'm very familiar with this story and I deal with it every day. You know, I'm not perfect. I run a restaurant that still has, you know, waiters and tips and stuff like that. So, but I'm working every day to try to create entities that will level the playing field. Saru, what about for you? What reactions do you have to Andres' story? So Andres' story really is a reflection of the very, very incredibly historic moment that we're in. We are in an extraordinarily historic moment. It's not a once in a lifetime moment. It's not a once in a generation moment. It's a once in a nation's history moment because the wage structure in the restaurant industry was created after emancipation of slavery in the United States of America. When The restaurant lobby, the Trade Association for Restaurants in the U.S., demanded the right to hire newly freed Black people, not pay them anything, and have them live on this new concept that had just come from Europe at the time called tipping. Before emancipation of slavery, even in feudal Europe, tipping had always been an extra or bonus on top of a wage. When it came to the States, it came right before emancipation, and the restaurant lobby basically wanted a way to hire Black people for free. And so they mutated tipping at that time from being an extra or bonus on top of a wage to becoming a replacement for wages, to becoming the wage itself. And that idea that Black people could live on nothing but tips was made law in 1938 as part of the New Deal when everybody got the right to the federal minimum wage for the first time, except for millions of Black workers. Farm workers who are mostly Black were left out. Domestic workers who are mostly Black were left out. And tipped restaurant workers were mostly Black women were left out and told you live on zero from your employer. If you get tips, that's all that counts. We went from zero in 1938 all the way up to the insane $2.13 an hour, which is the current federal minimum wage for tipped workers in the United States of America. Almost 6 million workers still live on that absurd $2 wage. And even before the pandemic, you had a population of millions of mostly women, mostly disproportionately women of color, working as servers in mostly very casual restaurants, IHOP, Denny's, Applebee's, Olive Garden, mom and pop restaurants in Michigan and Missouri. That's where most restaurant workers work. You know, Roy is an example, I think, of a really great minority of restaurants that are good employers 
that do the right thing, take care of their workers. But the vast majority of workers are working in chain restaurants, in mom and pop restaurants, are struggling to make ends meet in both the front and the back. Uh, And in the front of the house, it's largely women, women of color that struggled with incredible amounts of poverty and sexual harassment even before the pandemic because they were living on tips. Well, that situation got so much worse. With the pandemic, over 6 million workers lost their jobs instantly. Two-thirds of tipped workers said they couldn't get unemployment insurance because in most states, they were told that absurd wage of 2 or $3 was too low to qualify for benefits. So talk about essential. Mm-hmm. These workers were kicked to the curb. They were called essential and then told they couldn't even get unemployment insurance because they were paid too little. And then they went back to work in the summer of 2020. They found that tips were way down because sales were down and customer hostility and sexual harassment were through the roof. I mean, we had workers who were punched, shot, beaten up for trying to enforce the rules. Mm -hmm. And mind you, they were trying to enforce COVID rules on the very same customers from whom they had to get tips to make up their base wage in most states. You know, it was an impossible situation. And that moment when they were asked to do so much more for so much less, enforcing rules, becoming a public health marshal for so much less income and tips, they were done. They were done. One million restaurant workers have left the industry since the pandemic started. And of those who remain, 54% say they're leaving and 80% say they will only come back if they get a full livable wage with tips on top. So when I say historic, the historic moment is it's taken 150 years since emancipation and a global pandemic for millions of workers to finally say, no, I refuse to put up with this wage structure. I reject it. I will move away from this industry. What workers are saying is I will do anything else or nothing at all compared to working in restaurants. It's Mm. just not worth it anymore. As Roy said, it's always been broken, but it's gotten to a place of just it's unlivable. It's unlivable. And the most beautiful thing has happened in response. We've noted thousands of restaurants that are now raising wages, 15, 20, 25, 30 bucks an hour plus tips in order to get people to come back. And a lot of those employers are saying we can't do it alone. We need wages to go up across the board so that we're not out there on our own paying 30 bucks an hour. And we need policy to signal to millions of these essential workers that it is worth coming back, that you're going to get paid better and we're going to build back better. And it is worth coming back to this industry. So I'll just close by saying what, what struck me the most about what Andres talked about is what we hear from workers all the time. People love working in restaurants. They take pride in it. It's not a throwaway job for most people. It's not something they do while they're passing on to something else. Yes, there are college students who work in restaurants. Many people here, I'm sure, worked in restaurants in college. But for a lot of workers, this is their career. This is their profession. This is what they take pride in doing. They can't just, they just can't do it anymore, not being valued as the professionals that they are. Whether they're a server or a dishwasher, we need to value these workers. If we truly recognize them as essential, then for God's sakes, we need to pay them as the essential professionals that they are. No, thank you. Sorry, both of you bring up such amazing insight to that. And so I feel like the statistics, everything that you've mentioned, it's incredibly sobering. It just really is an awakening to understand how behind we are and actually comprehensively think about where we got to go. You know, I used to own restaurants myself. 
some of the restaurants were kind of close to the Hollywood areas. So it was kind of close to the bars and close to their clubs. But there was always that conversation. How do we give more? Because I was a busboy when I was about 12 years old. You know, at that time, I had just gotten to America. And my uncle was a server and he was kind of making a good living, but we weren't necessarily living great. But, you know, he was working his ass off. And then he offered, hey, if you're just not doing anything at home after school and you want to come over to the restaurant, we can use a hand in the you know dishwashing station and all that. And I bring this up because it goes back. You know, I'm 42 years old now. OK. And the way that restaurants have had to evolve and understand who is the person that's working at your restaurant and what their needs are. I also think about what you were mentioning. This should be, this job should be enough for you to live a happy life. I mean, if you're spending eight, nine hours, 10 hours on your feet all day, you should be able to go home to a place you like, you know, and drive a car that works, you know, and have a little money for entertainment and be able to buy yourself a shot because you need it, you know? Like any other professional. Like any other profession, you know? Yeah. So, so I love that this conversation is going into a place of awakening, but also of awareness, right? Like what, let's be aware of when somebody comes to your table, you know, how generous can we be to, to support that? We'll be right back after this break. As an actor, a producer, and a proud Latino father, my days can get very busy, which is why I make sure to dedicate time to what's important, like supporting my community through my work, sharing my Colombian and Venezuelan culture, and being present for my family, which is everything to me. Hey, everyone, it's Wilmer Valderrama. And when reflecting on what matters most, I start by giving thanks for good support in my life whenever I need to make the big decisions. How about you? If it's insurance you need, State Farm is there to help you choose the right coverage for you. And State Farm offers great support 24-7. Just call an agent. State Farm is also a big supporter of Michael Tuda Podcast Network by helping to share our Latinx voices. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite Michael Tuda shows wherever you get your podcasts. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives with 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional. You can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Welcome back to Essential Voices. 
You know, something that you're all making me think about is this kind of like, I don't know if I want to call it a joke, but just kind of this like line that I have that I often say to people, which is that if you haven't worked in the service industry, I think that everybody needs to. And that's, I think, the baseline that people don't always understand. You know, you see people out there at the restaurant that are like snapping their fingers at a wait person to get their food. Oh, and my you're God. Just like, and I tell you what, like one of the reasons why I couldn't come back was because of that. Hey, and I didn't know how to speak English, by the way. I didn't know how to speak English. So it got worse. Like people were just waving and like, oh, you don't even speak. Somebody else come and bring this kid out of here. Like it was so bad. You know, and all I was doing was bringing up, all I was, was picking up your dirty dishes, man. And you're yelling. Right. Yeah. Because then we're not recognizing the humanity and the human behind the folks who are actually working. I mean, as I said to both of you off screen before we started recording, I was a chef for a long time. And I took so much pride in doing that work from when you're literally getting produce or meat or whatever it is to making that food that you're serving. It takes a lot of time and love and energy. And it's not just, as you said, some sort of, you know, air quotes, throwaway job. And so I think we're seeing throughout this pandemic how we need to respect and celebrate and honor essential workers. But as you're saying, I mean, giving us that history about tipping in the United States, like, I think we still have so much that we need to do, and we're entering a new phase of the pandemic, a new phase of life, and the landscape for restaurants has been ever-changing as we've seen these different phases of the pandemic. We went from total lockdown to reopening and vaccines and then the Delta variant and Omicron. And so, Roy, I'm curious for you operating various restaurants, how has the pandemic affected the work that you've been doing Maybe walk us through a little bit about what that's looked like for you and for your restaurants and your employees throughout all these different phases. Yeah, sure. You know, everything is not the same, you know, because you have things from street food and, and loncheras all the way to fine dining restaurants or busy restaurants and club driven restaurants. So for me, I have a wide gamut, but my main business is lunch trucks. I run a taco truck called Kogi. We're all big fans. <laughs> oh, thank you. But I can give that as an example of what we faced during the pandemic. What you saw in the news a lot in restaurants and the, in the industry itself is that no matter how successful or small a restaurant or big a restaurant is, there's no savings in this business. You know, And I know we're talking about essential workers, which is the most important, but even the owners, in most cases, unless the owner's a scumbag, in most cases, the owners don't have that much either. And there's an imagination that the owners are living on a yacht and doing all these things. But this business is a razor thin business. And, and what we saw in the first week of the pandemic is most restaurants couldn't last more than four days without business. They had to completely fold. Kogi was no different. You know, overnight, we lost probably 65 to 70 percent of our business because most of our business was about 50 percent was focused on catering whether that's going to Hollywood sets and doing wrap parties or feeding the crew or just doing birthday parties, weddings, all these things. All those got canceled. The streets went empty for about two weeks and we just had maybe one or two of our regular stops. It wasn't looking good. By the second week, we were pretty much down to two or three days worth of money left. Our business itself didn't really qualify for any loans. And so what we decided to do is... I looked at my team and I'm like, listen, you know, if we're going to go down, let's go down the Kogi way. And the Kogi way has always been about feeding as many people as we possibly can for as affordable a price as we can. And we're kind of like a, a new version of the Grateful Dead. We fill parking lots. We take care of each other. Money is a secondary concept. 
we're like a river. We just try to make sure everyone gets taken care of. And I'm like, listen, if we're going to go down, let's go down how we started. And let's just feed people for free as much as we can. And so we just started feeding people who had lost their jobs, that were out on the street, that were hungry, families that were hungry, essential workers, like people working in clinics, especially clinics at Skid Row, which were the forgotten medical industries during the pandemic, you know. And we just started feeding people. And then our Kogi fans started really latching onto it. And we created, a, they asked us to create a Venmo and everyone started donating. So for almost a year, 10 months, we fulfilled kind of this philosophy of taking the idea of profit out of a business, which is absurd in a capitalist system, but it worked. You know, I'm not saying that that is the complete answer, but it did allow us to live in a world of idealism and show and prove that it can work if we all give a little and take care of each other. That 10 months of this Venmo feeding everyone no profit system allowed Kogi to keep our employees employed for us to be able to stay alive just enough till the world kind of opened back up. And it was a beautiful time. Wow. I mean, you're also talking about changing culture, right? Yeah. That's the other thing about the values that you are explaining right now. Very much like going back to what Sarah was saying, that you're doing it for the right reasons. Like that's why you show up to work because you really love and it's a form of entertainment, right? It's a form of recreation release when you go and eat something you just can't eat every day because you can't find it. So when you find the experience, when you get able to get out and, and, and experience that memory, I think that's awesome. That's something you take with you for the week, right? Like going back to the values of what the food entertainment industry, I call it, because it's so fun to just sit, leave your house and sit out somewhere and see people enjoying their food, their conversations. And, and that's awesome. So I appreciate you what you're offering there because I think it's a quick reminder of it, it's not just a numbers game. And I hear you on the ownership part of it because I had eight restaurants at one point in my early career. And dude, you're breaking even, you know, and then if you don't have a bar, it's even worse because the bar is the only place where you could sustain, you know, salaries for everybody else in the restaurant, not even just the bar. The bar is providing for everybody you keep on the floor. So it's like a very interesting dynamic. So I appreciate you saying that. It's really inspiring because I've been wanting to get back in the food industry and I just think my timing is off on this one, <laughs> you know, but... It's a crazy model. It's very much like being a public school teacher. You're not doing it for the money. You're doing it because that's your purpose in life. You know, for many people who either run restaurants or work in restaurants outside of New York and LA, like you mentioned, this is a profession. For New York and L.A., you know, obviously there, there are actors on auditions that can only have a night shift job. So the restaurant works well for that. In New York, we have models that are going to auditions and photo shoots. So a nighttime bartender job allows them to have their career goals. But outside of that, it's a profession for most people. Mm. It's a livelihood. But the weird part is if we were just oil changers or mechanics, that's one thing. But it's been moved to this weird zone of entertainment. But then it gets treated like blue collar exploited work. But then it also gets all of the attention, front page, newspaper, media coverage. Every single person is dying to get into the hottest place. And it creates a really weird dichotomy that hasn't been addressed until now. So hopefully as things go back to being open, that it doesn't go back to normal because mm -hmm. normal wasn't normal. Sometimes... The powerless have to succumb to just accepting and going back. And I just hope that that's not going to be the case. But again, we can make small advances, I think. But I don't think that we can fully 
change the system unless we confront the industry itself, which is working off of a model that is unheard of in any other aspect of life. You know, hiring people under the table, undocumented, not paying sick pay, PTO, insurance, healthcare, anything. Working in an environment where you can be abused at any time of the day, any time of the night, not only physically and sexually, but also over the phone. There are threats that are given to workers. If you don't show up to work today, you're fired, even if it's your day off. And so all of those things, I think, because there is no regulating system. And again, this is an industry that people take for granted. And it's an industry that a lot of people come in through the back door that can't get jobs anywhere else. That there's this inherent belief that you can you can treat people any way you want to. That's unacceptable. I think that's exactly right. Normal was never normal. It was always a crisis for millions of workers who are living on the edge. And for sure, for thousands of restaurant owners who are living on the edge, too. I mean, frankly, the only folks who really benefited from the system was the National Restaurant Association and the chains that lead the National Restaurant Association. These are huge multi-billion dollar corporations that have been around, some of them for decades. As I said, the lobby has been around for over a hundred years, profiting off a system that mm. hasn't really worked for anybody and just got so much worse. I mean, to the question of you know, during the pandemic, what happened to workers? Just one example that was really one of the most egregious examples you know, on top of, as Roy said, here you are, your food, your entertainment, it's blue collar, like it's all these different things. And then on top of that, it became a COVID hotspot and it became a place where workers were asked to enforce public health rules. Mm -hmm. And so we heard from thousands and thousands of women across the country who said, I'm asked on every shift, take off your mask so I can see how cute you are before I decide how much I want to tip you. Take off your mask so I can see the pretty face of my server before I decide whether I want to tip or how much I want to tip. And so women were put in this horrific situation of, do I expose myself for the chance, not, not even the guarantee, but the chance that the man will like my face and expose my family and myself? Or do I say no with the risk of getting no tips, which in most of the country, you all, I don't know where you worked, Wilmer, but it sounds like a lot of the experience here is California. And believe it or not, as we've got issues in California, but it is so much better than the rest of the country. At least we have a wage in California. At least the women, you know, in California can say buzz off to a man who says, because I, I can count on a wage from my boss in 43 states in the U.S., you live on nothing but tips. Your wage is two or three or four dollars. Most states it's under five. So that wage goes entirely to taxes. You're living off your tips. If a man says, take off your mask, mm. you kind of have no choice because that's the only way you're making money that hour is from that tip. Wow. And so that was kind of the breaking point for so many workers. Basically, you're asking me to risk my life for the chance of getting a tip. But also it's just degrading. It's, it's just degrading. like, stop. You were talking about the snapping, Wilmer. Yeah. That, that is comes down to a power dynamic. And it's this sense of, I own you yeah. because I tip you. You know, I snap my fingers, you come. I snap mm -hmm. my fingers, you take off your mask. I snap my fingers, you do what I expect. It kind of goes back what you were saying to this Bridgerton idea that yeah. you are my servant. You are my servant because I tip you. And rather than seeing the service person as a professional who has skills, 
who can offer you something you can't get at home. And mm. therefore you should show respect to this person mm. who is bringing you a delicious meal that you can't prepare by yourself, who is bringing it to you, anticipating your needs, talking to you about the meal and the wine in a way that you cannot do at home. So pay some respect. Would we treat a professor or a, any other customer service profession, right? Even a real retail worker or a doctor or a lawyer or a professor, you know, imagine if a doctor's income was based on whether their diagnosis pleased us mm. or imagine a professor, you know, we pay them based on whether the grade they give us pleases us. This is the only profession where whether they please me or not. And in some cases, that means take off your mask, whether mm. you please me or not is going to determine how much they earn. And it's ridiculous for both front and back. It doesn't make any sense. And it got so much worse. And it's why so many workers are done with it. But I have to say, for all that I've just said that's so negative, I really, believe it or not, I'm so hopeful. I am so hopeful because I have never seen such a seismic shift, such an upheaval in our industry where so many restaurants that fought us on this in the past are now paying this, are now doing it differently all over the country because either the murder of George Floyd really moved them to say it's time to get rid of a legacy of slavery, or they realized we have to try an entirely new model because remember for so long we didn't have indoor dining and suddenly people were attempting models of, okay, everybody works together, we're a team you know, we all prepare the food. We all we hand it off to the customer. Everybody shares the tip. So people were experimenting with new models because they had to. Mm -hmm. And then now they're having to raise wages to get workers to come back. So we're seeing the opposition to raising wages going away. We're seeing a lot more restaurants get on board with change and a lot more restaurants understanding exactly what Roy is saying, which is that it was never normal and we cannot go back to the way things were. And Zara, I wanted to piggyback on what you're saying because you work extensively at documenting the stories of workers in the industry. And I want to mention your book, One Fair Wage, which I encourage everyone to pick up. This is a deep dive on what you really should know as law. You know, so I'm excited for you to talk a little bit more about that. But can you elaborate on how the pandemic has impacted social workers you know, kind of piggyback and in, in elaborate on what you've already started, many of whom are undocumented at the moment. What's changed for workers over the last two full pandemic years? I mean, that's the zone we're entering now. Yeah. I mean, just like many employers, workers in 2020 experienced the most extreme suffering. We already had the highest levels of home insecurity of any industry in the United States, meaning people living under bridges, living in their cars, working in restaurants all over the country or living on somebody's couch. You know, there's many different forms of home insecurity. And that just got insane with the pandemic. I mean, people lost their homes, moved in with family, left the country. I mean, just all kinds of situations. And so it's so true. I can't tell you the number of workers I've known who live in their car or live under a bridge or live on somebody's couch and then show up, put on a white shirt, black pants, and then they're supposed to put on a smile and nobody knows what they're dealing with in the restaurant or in their quote unquote home, which is not a home. That's what I was talking about. That level of suffering got just so bad. It reached such an extreme level that so many people are done. They're done. I think Roy that moment of when does the customer understand what people are going through? It happens when they're not able to eat out as much as they used to be because workers aren't willing to go back. And every restaurant is understaffed and they're not open every day of the week the way they used to be because they don't have enough staff. 
that's why I have a hope because, you know, it, it is like you said, a moment of worker leverage. It's a moment of worker power. I've had some members say to us, it's like we finally know our worth. We're worth more than $2. We're worth more than $3. We are worth more than this. Our skill, our value, our professionalism, we are worth more than this. And it's taken so long for workers to say, I know my worth and I refuse. And I think what's going to happen, I hope, is we're more and more going to see workers stand up and say, enough is enough. There is a part of the history I didn't share, which I hope will give us some hope, which is that Right before emancipation, when tipping first came to the U.S., actually was rejected by Americans. Americans said, this is a vestige of feudalism. We reject it. You know, customers should get good service regardless of how much they can afford to tip. And by the way, we think employers should pay their workers, not customers. And there was this anti-tipping movement. Six states passed bans on tipping because they said employers should pay their workers. And that movement spread to Europe. The labor movement picked it up in Europe in the early 1900s and got rid of tipping in Europe based on this rallying cry, we are professionals, we don't live on your tips. And that is why you don't tip as much when you go to Europe, because there was a movement to say, we are professionals, treat us like professionals. And so I feel like we're in a similar moment. I'm not necessarily saying get rid of tipping, but I am saying we are in a moment where workers are saying, we are professionals, value us as the professionals that we are. I mean, I've been doing this work for 20 years. I have never in 20 years seen the women at Hooters stand up against the uniforms. Do you know last year, the women at Hooters stood up against the uniforms. It's incredible. We're seeing this like moment where workers are saying, I'm done with being treated like dirt and I need to be respected and valued because what I have to offer is a skill and a profession that everybody should value. I I mean, Really, truly, I have to tell you something because you're running this Essential Workers podcast. For so many of our members, Essential Workers became an insult. Calling people Essential became an insult because what people understood when people kept saying, oh, you're Essential, you're Essential, that means I'm underpaid and mistreated. And so you can call me Essential, but you're going to pay me two bucks and you're going to snap your fingers and tell me to take off my mask. Mm -hmm. And you're going to not give me unemployment insurance and tell me that I'm lazy and that's why I don't want to go back to work. Those were all the things that we did as a country to essential workers. And so it became an insult. And if you think about restaurant work in particular, you know, the CDC named restaurants the most dangerous place for adults to be, believe it or not. Of all public places, they named restaurants the most dangerous place to be. UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, named restaurants the number one most dangerous place to work during the pandemic, more dangerous than hospitals. And so you're talking about working in the most dangerous environment. All the other essential workers are talking about hazard pay, and we we need to be paid more because we're doing all this very essential high-risk work. And workers in the restaurant industry saw their wages stagnate. I mean, the wage hasn't gone up from $2 for 30 years, 30 years. It's been stuck there at the federal level. So, you know, it became an insult. People felt people experienced extreme suffering. I mean, we had people telling us, I don't even have gas money to get to the food bank to get food for my children. I'm being evicted. I mean, I just can't even tell you the level of suffering people experience. Sarah, I also wonder about the undocumented because you think about Right. And then you probably go down a couple of more floors on the on the building when he's speaking of undocumented because undocumented don't qualify for the conversation we're having. 
I, I almost feel like they get paid with food. You know what I mean? It's just right. kind of like. No, it's true. But the truth is actually, Wilmer, they do have rights. And we've actually sued on behalf of undocumented workers and gotten wages back because if people got a livable wage, if the minimum wage were to go up, you would see undocumented workers' wages go up because the whole floor is lifted. So technically, they do have rights. That is if the restaurant honors that, but specifically, exactly. you know what I mean? You're exactly. also talking about. You're talking about East Coast, West Coast. They don't want to get violating. You know, you don't want some secret shopper to come in and say, hey, you know, let me see your books, you know. But exactly. the rest of the country doesn't have to oblige to that, specifically, you know, states. Not. I mean, yeah. In the rest of the country, when your wage is two or three dollars, a lot of times workers think of the wage as negligible. They're like, I don't even get a wage. I just live on my tips. And frankly, that has not changed since emancipation. That is exactly where we were at. Mm -hmm. When black workers were told you don't get a wage, you live on tips. The fact that that hasn't changed in 150 years is insanity. It's insanity and it's got to change. And that's why I'm hopeful because I've been doing this work for decades. Mm -hmm. It's the first time I'm seeing actual movement on the issue where people who fought us are not fighting us the way they used to because they're realizing we have only two choices as an industry, change or die. If a million workers have left, and 54% are saying they're going to leave. We have only two choices. We can either experience half of the industry that we experienced pre-pandemic, or we can raise wages and change the way we treat people and make things more equitable and provide people with an actual ability to think of this as a profession or a career. If right. we don't start thinking of this as a profession or a career, we'll never get all those workers to come back. They won't do it. We'll be right back after this break. I often get asked why I'm such a big fan of wrestling, and it's all thanks to my grandma. Growing up, we would watch matches together, and that bond turned me into a lifelong fan. Hi, I'm Freddie Prinze Jr., and on my podcast, Wrestling with Freddie, we know how important it is to have the right teammate, because things can get pretty tricky quick. So, when things get complicated and you need help, State Farm gives you options. They show you what's possible for ensuring what matters to you. One of the things that matters to me? Sharing memories and revisiting wrestling's greatest moments. And with State Farm's support of the My Cultura Podcast Network, I get to do just that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite My Cultura shows wherever you listen to podcasts. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, You can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, 
Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Welcome back to Essential Voices. In diving into the work that both of you do and wanted to introduce also the audience to your efforts and what you've done and how you've expanded what you were, your knowledge into the other Trinitians. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's a show called Broken Bread. It's on two platforms. It's on public television, KCET, and it's also on Tastemade, which is a global media food platform that you can watch from anywhere, your phone, your TV, anything. And really what it is, is it, it's a social justice show disguised as a food show because food is the thing that brings people in. You know, shoes are more popular than sneakers. You know, everyone loves food. And so we use food and the cinematography of food and the storytelling of food to bring people in, to be able to talk about issues like this, to talk about seed preservation and the loss of seeds. You know, do you, things like, do you know that 50% of the world's seeds are controlled only by four corporations? If that moves to 80, 90%, we're in trouble as human beings. You know, we get caught up on the algorithms controlling who we are as people. It's once they control food, they're going to control everything about us. And we will be, you know, some science fiction movie in the future where we have no individual or abstract or creative thought. We'll all be controlled. So we do things like that. We talk about gentrification, the loss of neighborhood restaurants, worker exploitation. We talk about all these things that are really tough to talk about through the lens of food. And it's our second season. We tried to up our game by getting some really powerful guests covering powerful topics and really investing in our storytelling and our cinematography. And our season finale is actually tonight. And we it was the first time we went international. Tonight's episode covers Tijuana. Yeah, thank you, Roy, for sharing about Broken Bread. It's amazing. As I see the intersection so intensely between food and social justice, obviously there's so many connections and so many threads. You just brought up seeds and the fact that it's for corporations. And there's so much to be learned from the way that we're preserving our food traditions and honoring food storytelling like we're doing today. So thank you for shedding a bit of light about what the show is. And turning it over to you, Saru, what campaigns are you currently working on with One Fair Wage? So we started to notice this incredible moment of opportunity last year. Our members are saying this is not a great resignation. It's a great revolution. It's workers rising up and saying enough is enough. And so we knew that this was, like I said, once in a nation history moment. And so we decided to massively scale our efforts. And so together with donors across the country and workers and employers, we are committing an initial $25 million to raise wages and end subminimum wages in 25 states by the United States 250th anniversary, which is 2026. 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence is 2026. And I think we want to ask ourselves, what kind of country do we want to be at our 250th anniversary? And what kind of country do we want to be in our next 250 years? Do we want to be a country that persists with a legacy of slavery, where you've got the nation's largest workforce unable to pay for rent and, and food for themselves while they're putting food on our tables? Or do we want to be the kind of country where we value the people who serve us? And so that is why we're committed to raising wages in half the states by our nation's 250th anniversary. And we'd love it if people would join in that effort, contribute, support. You know, this issue is going to be on the ballot this November in California. We're raising the wage to $18 an hour in California. It's going to be on the ballot in Michigan, where we're raising the wage to 15 Do you know the wage for servers in Michigan is $3.67? 
So we're raising that wage to 15. We're raising the wage in our nation's capital. It's on the ballot in June to go from five bucks an hour in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., to $15 an hour. So this is happening in states across the country. And we'd love for people to get more engaged by going to our website, onefairwage.org. You know, there's so much to process and learn from that conversation. It definitely helped me to look at the business from a new perspective. And while it is frustrating to hear all the statistics and the stories Saru shared, you know, I got really excited when I heard about the hope that both she and Roy have for the future of the industry. As they mentioned, we're clearly at a turning point. Totally. And it was so cool to hear about the experimenting that Roy has been doing at Kogi and at all of his other restaurants and food trucks. Coming together for a meal should be a loving celebration, and I'm grateful for the work that One Fair Wage and chefs like Roy are doing to get us back to that place. And on that positive note, let's look forward. We are actually at a turning point as well with Essential Voices. We have two episodes left of our season, so we'll be shaking things up a little before we sign off. Yeah, that's right. And next week, we'll air a collection of unaired essential worker interviews. We had the privilege of speaking to many folks from a huge variety of careers for the show, and they all had incredible stories to tell. After we hear from our final voices, we'll regroup the next week for our final, 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 which, a spoiler alert, is going to be awesome. Are you going to tell them what we're doing? No, because it is more fun to keep it as a surprise. All right, fine. Well, to find out what our finale is all about, tune in next week to hear from our amazing Essential Voices. Essential Voices with Wilmer Valderrama is produced by me, M.R. Raquel, Allison Shano, and Kevin Rutkowski, with production support from associate producer Lillian Holman, executive producers Wilmer Valderrama, Adam Reynolds, Leo Clem, and Aaron Hilliard. This episode was edited by M.R. Raquel, Sean Tracy, and Justin Cho, and features original music by Will Rosati. Special thanks to this week's essential voice, Andres Almeida, and to our thought leaders, Saru Jayaraman from One Fair Wage and Roy Choi. Additional thanks to Yamila Ruiz, Mana Javadi, Alexa Rubalcaba, Clara Bottoms, and Natasha Fan. This is a Clamor and WV Entertainment production in partnership with iHeartRadio's My Cultura Podcast Network. For more podcasts from iHeart, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. 
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.